0: UEG Talks, gastroenterology to go. Welcome to our GI podcast. Listen for fresh insights and perspectives in science, education and professional development. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to this uh, special episode of the UEG Talks, um, covering the best of the UEG week in Copenhagen. Uh, I'm Pradeek Mundry and I'm your host today. I'm really, really excited to um, uh, to welcome uh, Julia Miley, the chair of the UEG Scientific Committee, uh, who's joined me in co-hosting this very special episode. Welcome, Julia. Thank you, Pradeep. So uh, in this episode, we are covering the highlights and the best of endoscopy at UEG Week. Uh, definitely my favorite international conference. Um, endoscopy lately has challenged the conventional norms uh, with what is possible to do with a few fingers and some controls outside the human body. When I talk to my friends, they're fascinated to know how we can remove a 10-centimeter tumor from a working space of 2.8 millimeter. Of course, I'm talking about the gastroscope here. Such advancements would not be possible without scientific conferences such as UG Week, ESGE. And such conferences provide the platform to learn, to improve, to collaborate, and get some amazing ideas to make such innovation happen. Uh, And the UG Week in Copenhagen last week, two weeks ago, uh, some amazing new science was presented, and and some new ways of doing some older procedures were demonstrated, and some big practice-changing science was also presented. I was well and truly impressed. So, uh, I would up- request my co-host, Julia, to introduce, um, uh, do the honours of introducing the guest today to talk about this.
1: Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Cesare Hassan, who's a dear member of the SciComm Committee of UEG, and he also is the mastermind behind the postgraduate course this year. Um, Cesar, I'm really thankful, uh, for all your help with, in preparing, um, UEG week in Copenhagen. But in your real life, if you, if you're not working for me, um, you're an associate professor at the Humanitas University in Milan, a gastroenterologist by training, and right now president elect of ESGE. So the European Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. You've previously been the treasurer of ESGE and also the chair of the guideline committee. And your special interest in endoscopy is artificial intelligence. So I'm pretty sure that we're gonna kick off this meeting without knowing with an artificial intelligence abstract from UEG where I really know that there had been a lot. So what was the most gro- groundbreaking paper for you, Cesare, in Copenhagen?
2: Thanks, Julia, for um, uh, your uh, nice words. Uh, and um, I agree with you that uh, uh, the endoscopy community uh, sent an impressive number of uh, very good abstracts uh, to UIDLi uh, 2023. And honestly, it was difficult uh, for us to select a uh, very few of the best uh, abstracts, Julia. But uh, your leadership in the cycle helped me because it was all of us uh, to select uh, uh, one abstract uh, uh, on artificial intelligence. Intelligence is one of the best abstract uh, for um, uh, this year. Not unexpectedly, Julia. This is an abstract on uh, artificial intelligence uh, in colonoscopy because. Uh, uh, there are on the market uh, more than uh, five uh, AI for colonoscopy, and people want to know the actual um, efficacy of these devices. So the first um, uh, highlight that uh, we select um, is a multicenter um, uh, study led by Peter Sinonquella from the group of uh, uh, Raff Bishop uh, in uh, Leven University, who performed um, an original. study methodology. Instead of doing uh, the typical randomization between AI and not AI, he put uh, while uh, I was doing a colonoscopy, a second observer close to me who was looking at the second screen with artificial intelligence. And any time I was missing a polyp, he was uh, telling me, look, you are missing a polyp. Then I went back and I uh, found uh, hopefully the I really like this methodology because I feel it is more uh, uh, trusty and um, it is uh, in the same patient. This is an intra patient study. It is not an inter patient study. And in fact, um, uh, Peter Sinonquella showed that the additional yield of adenoma detected by AI is only 4%. And this, uh, Julia, is uh, six times uh, less than what estimated by randomized trial that we know can be biased So I like this study Julia because it shows that a rigorous study methodology is essential to uh, to estimate uh, uh, realistically the benefit of a technique
1: Cesare, I totally agree and um, to be honest I'm I was also very su- surprised by the abstract of Alexander Han, and you might want to comment on that, where he showed that you can actually, by do-it-yourself or DIY, manufacture your own artificial intelligence device by just going to media market and buy the technology and a nice computer and comparing his own built device, which cost you about 100 euros, with all the, the um, technologies available on the market, showed equivalent results. So do you think we really need to invest a lot in these AI systems?
2: Yeah, th- This is a very good point, uh, Julia, and I also pay tribute uh, to Alexander for having done what, uh, honestly speaking, uh, companies would never ever have liked to do. I still remember that, I don't know, the first randomized trial between different interferon or different anti-TNF came very late. So this in artificial intelligence, thanks to Alexander, came early and came from an independent um, uh, center. And I feel this is very informative uh, for uh, the uh, endoscopy community because it uh, shows uh, that uh, there is uh, a substantial equivalence, at least in terms of sensitivity, of uh, computer-aided detection. And also, uh, when um, a guideline are expected uh, at uh, the end of this year uh, will come out, um, this uh, will somewhat reassure that most of the computer aided polyp uh, system available on the market uh, will um, uh, reach the benefit uh, um, recommended uh, by the uh, guideline uh, group.
1: Looking forward to read that.
2: Yeah, it's coming.
0: Right, uh moving on to uh, next. Uh, I was wondering if there's anything that was presented that would challenge or change our clinical practice imminently that we, or uh, our listeners can take home and start practicing uh, pretty much straight away. Was there any science or any new abstracts that were presented that we can adapt uh, straight away in clinical practice?
2: Yes, um, uh, Pradeep. Uh, we had um, uh, an extensive uh, submission of abstract uh, in the field of uh, advanced imaging for advanced colorectal lesion. Uh, and this uh, was not unexpected uh, because uh, uh, endoscopic submucosal dissection uh, for colorectal lesion uh, is taking place uh, in Western countries. Helmut uh, Mesman, Bandari, standard repeatedly showed uh, that only here uh, in Europe, uh, we can have very good uh, outcome uh, with uh, ESD, not only for rectal, but also for colorectal colorectalism. Thus, advanced imaging uh, to stratify the risk uh, and to orientate the treatment uh, is of pivotal importance. In this case, I want to pay tribute uh, to uh, David Tate, uh, who is an amazing uh, uh, UK endoscopist uh, who uh, spent uh, a good part of his training in Australia before joining uh, uh, Belgium and um, uh, David um, is uh, extremely good uh, not only in creating uh, but in validating uh, training system and in particular in uh, in his uh, uh, abstract uh, he validated a uh, um, uh, a training system based on six uh, somewhat easy endoscopic features for the presence of an already invasive and deep uh, polyp cancer. And we are talking about the six blink features, uh, that is, fault deformation, redness, depression, chicken skin, mucosa, ulceration, spontaneous bleeding. And... uh, uh, David showed that um, uh, by performing uh, uh, such a um, uh, system, the uh, uh, sensitivity uh, for the detection of a deep invasive cancer uh, substantially increased amongst the very population uh, of um, uh, endoscopy. So this um, uh, Pradeep uh, is uh, somewhat uh, easy. Uh, To do, it is based only on 20 overview images of colorectal polyp. It is extremely effective, but let me say Pradeep is clinically relevant. And this is what we want uh, from uh, uh, medical intervention.
0: Yeah, Shazri, that's well put. Um, I think one of the common problems that I see um, is uh, the polyps that are referred to advanced therapy, they're inappropriately referred. So either they're already advanced Tumors, or uh, even the benign lesions are sometimes called malignant by other endoscopists, and having some sort of a simple clinical uh, practice uh, videos and images for, to use to predict advanced neoplasia would really help us. I think, and I hope uh, David can share the video because I did. I did go to that session, and uh, I hope David can share the video to share on the UEG education website, that would make a big difference for clinical practice, I think.
2: I'm pretty confident. Uh, Padipa, let me cite uh, just very briefly uh, one episode by Japan on the possibility to use advanced uh, endoscopy to predict the risk of advanced histology in small colorectal polyps. First, I want to pay tribute to Japanese endoscopies because they massively come to UIG and uh, their participation in uh, endoscopy uh, session is always uh, uh, somewhat enlightening. Yeah, because of, their ability yeah, to, to classify the risk of uh, a cancer in uh, early lesion is uh, amazing. Uh, in this case, they, they, they show that even in a small polyp, uh, you can identify advanced neplasia. And this is very important uh, for the reset and discard strategy. I'm not sure that um, uh, European endoscopists uh, will have uh, 30 or 40 minutes of time to spend uh, in front of each small polyp. But I'm pretty confident that Japanese endoscopists uh, are opening the way uh, for artificial intelligence uh, to predict uh, the risk of advanced neoplasia in a small polyp. And this will allow us uh, to stratify polyp that uh, can be reset and discard, or that should be resect and sent. Uh, to histology so uh, uh, a bit bit in the uh, long way uh, I feel that uh, this upset um, is in the long term uh, a game changer and um, and uh, it is a very nice uh, uh, job from our Japanese uh, uh, friends
0: yeah I, I call it uh, these uh, these uh, things as gut feeling sometimes I say yeah polyp looks very advanced uh, and these guys have kind of structured it and sort of made, given the features that would, that would say, that would kind of predict my gut feeling.
1: So moving on in our OEG talks, and if you recollect all your experiences from OEG Week in Copenhagen, which of these abstracts or talks would definitely change your existing standard treatments or paradigms? Anything you yeah. can remember?
2: yeah uh Julia so uh, i guess that uh, we also appreciated the, the uh, big input uh, uh from the hong kong um, uh university in particular by one of his leaders philip q in uh o e g and uh, from this university came uh, a very um somewhat clinically relevant um, uh, study on the uh risk of um, a bleeding according to the timing of uh, interruption of uh, anticoagulant uh, treatment uh, before a high bleeding risk endoscopic procedure. Let me be straightforward, Julia. Usually, uh, we stop uh, DOAC uh, 48 uh, or even more hours before high risk endoscopic procedure. However, during this 48 hour, patient uh, are at risk of a thromboembolic event, and I guess that uh, each of us had, in their own clinic, patients who had severe thromboembolic uh, episode during this time. Thus, the Hong Kong um, team has been able to address the uh, pharmacokinetic of the uh, DOAC in the period before. Uh, the, uh, the endoscopy procedure in order to identify those patients uh, who have uh, an enough effect, efficient uh, kidney clearance uh, to stop the treatment only 24 hours before. And this would minimize uh, the window of harm for a thrombotic event. This is something you that I would like to have uh, immediately in my uh, clinical practice because I never feel uh, somewhat uh, reassured to stop uh, to stop a, a DOAC in a person at high risk of a thrombotic event. I don't know if you agree with
1: that. I, I can totally agree with that. And I, I absolutely understand that that is a really important contribution to our clinical practice. The question which comes to my mind immediately is, I mean, yes, we now know when to stop it, but the much harder decision is when to restart it. And I mean, that very much depends on on the procedure you've actually done, but do you think we should also question this in future trials?
2: Absolutely, Uh, Julia, this is extremely uh, relevant. Uh, Last, an anecdotal example, Yesterday, it came to my clinic, a patient uh, who stopped DOAC one month ago because after a colonoscopy where there was a polyp not removed, uh, it was recommended to stop uh, DOAC before polypectomy, but then polypectomy was never planned and this patient has been without anticoagulant for more than uh, two months. So uh, the restart uh, of uh, DOAC is extremely uh, important, unfortunately. We don't have uh, somewhat uh, clean data as a pharmacokinetic uh, in the endoscopy field, but I agree with you that we should learn to stratify the bleeding uh, risk of our stigmata, according, specifically according to the time of restarting of the uh, DOAC. So we are uh, a bit in delay as compared with the pharmacokinetic of stopping uh, rather than to restart. Yeah it's very
1: good fun. Yeah, for, for, uh, I mean this is obviously because of the heterogeneity, but I've got, I can actually tell you from my experience last week that I had a patient who was 83 years old who got a, a sphincterotomy for cholangitis and he bled because he was still hadn't been stopping his stork's long enough but we couldn't wait and he we a FC zems and he came back now 12 weeks later, bleeding heavily, arterial bleeding from his papilla. So I did, we didn't expect that. So I had to remove the stems um, without radiology and had to replace it after I, I clipped the papilla, which is quite strange because I thought three months later, that's just impossible. But this probably illustrates how little we know about the biology of, uh, of bleeding, and we, but we, we certainly need to stratify it there um, as our cardiologists prescribe more and more DOACs for any indications.
2: Yeah, the unpredictability of the DOAC effect is in endoscopy a problem. I can anticipate that in the next year, probably to be terminated, the uh, randomized trial on Colesneringum without a with the DOAC uh, interruption, I'm pretty confident that it be presented uh, at our uh, next OEG. So please come to, to see
0: it. um obviously you know most things in endoscopy, you know what happens in the endoscopy world with friends around you who you collaborate with. Uh, but was there something that... Or something important that you didn't know, what was new to you? Or is there any other science that you want to highlight um, that we have not covered so far?
2: Yeah, um, there is um, one very controversial uh, uh, paper that uh, I would like to discuss with uh, a worldwide uh, leading expert like uh, Julia on uh, a Dutch um, multi center randomized. uh, trial uh, on uh, endoscopic uh, sphincterotomy to prevent pancreatitis uh, after we put a metastent uh, for a malignant biliary obstruction. So, I want to pay tribute to the author to uh, include a very well-defined population. I feel this is something that uh, uh, we should um, uh, recognize. This is an interim uh, Analysis, but I feel that the data are already uh, very uh, clear because they uh, show that uh, uh, there is uh, no clinically relevant uh, uh, difference in the risk of uh, pancreatitis uh, between the two groups. We are talking about uh, 17 and 21 percent, so it's not clinically um, relevant. Um, And uh, so the uh, most likely uh, conclusion is that the need of uh, uh, swinterotomy is probably uh, marginal uh, in these um, uh, patients. But again, I, I leave the, the, the interpretation of this out to you.
1: Well, I mean, I, that, um, I found this abstract really striking and I also found um, the, the trials striking. Initially, when I read the heading, I thought they are really very brave. Because, I mean, if you think about the pathophysiology of acute pancreatitis going back 100 years, talk thinking about the um, OP hypothesis of duct obstruction, um, which actually leads to pancreatitis, then placing a fully covered metal stent without a sphincterotomy will immediately lead to the obstruction, of the pancreatic duct and that should consequently or consecutively lead to pancreatitis. So looking at the data, one can only think that the reason why you don't, not everybody gets rip roaring pancreatitis is that you have a malignant mass in the pancreatic head, which is slowly growing and all those patients already have pancreatic duct obstruction, and um, the organ has adapted to the situation and maybe even um, become atrophic. And that is uh, the reason why we don't see a difference. The counter-argument to this is the very high rate of post-EOCP pancreatitis. So one would expect a pancreatitis rate of, say, approximately 3 to 8%. But, um, in this study, we see a post ESCP pancreatitis rate of 17 to 21 percent. I mean, I totally agree that that always depends on, um, how you define post ESCP pancreatitis and probably, um, to, to, to not include or recruit too many patients in this trial. They, they, um, probably used, um with respect to the cotton criteria, also the milder forms of acute post-ESCP um, pancreatitis, and included it there. And this is why they have such a high number. So whether the number um is clinic of pancreatitis cases is clinically relevant cannot really be read from the abstracts. And the only other explanation I have is that we are In the situation that with a p-value of um, below 0.05, we still have a considerably number, so one in every 20 studies, which is false positive or false negative for its outcome, and um, we have to await um, the, the final results and not only look at the interim analysis. So I found these abstracts striking. But to be honest, I'm not ready to change my clinical practice, and I will continue doing a sphincterotomy, um, especially as I learned my lessons from the balloon sphincteroplasty, um, which gives you a higher rate of post ESCP pancreatitis.
2: Yeah, yeah, very good point, Julia. Uh, the result of one study should not immediately affect your clinical practice, but it should only be uh, contextualized. Uh, uh, in it. Uh, for uh, this reason, uh, uh, Julian, uh, let me also add that uh, this year uh, was a bit special uh, for uh, endoscopy in OEG uh, because uh, for the first time uh, we uh, somewhat uh, target uh, the field of uh, advance in clinical gastroenterology to endoscopy, and uh, we had. Uh, a trim, a outstanding session on uh, the benefit uh, that endoscopy gave to the community in uh, the last um, uh, 30 years. So, we had uh, an outstanding uh, session on uh, third space endoscopy, for instance. We had a session on quality endoscopy. We had a session on uh, um hepatobiliary. So, I feel that this is the first year that endoscopy really entered uh, as a clinical protagonist in. Um, and uh, this was um, in the same day as uh, the uh, live transmission by uh, Asberg and uh, all the room were uh, very well attended showing the uh, attraction of endoscopy in the the program.
1: I totally agree. I, I absolutely agree there. So that brings us to to our next question. Is there anything that caught your eye on modification or changes to existing techniques that will either make them simpler, more effective, or even more cost-effective?
2: So the uh, uh, cost-effectiveness came um, in uh, a nice uh, debate uh, in between uh, uh, Evelyn Decker and uh, Matt Kaliger from uh, Actually, the uh, breast screening uh, uh, experience uh, on uh, whether the artificial intelligence uh, uh, creates overdiagnosis. I feel that um, uh, the issue of a massive screening for early cancer uh, will lead to a substantial implementation of a cost uh, for overdiagnosis. Uh, Unfortunately, endoscopists um, seem to be uh, somewhat neglected uh, to this issue. Uh, but uh, Mette Kalliger uh, really convinced the audience uh, on uh, the fact that uh, most polyps would never develop to uh, cancer. Probably most of squamous dysplasia would never become to cancer. The same uh, in, uh, in gastric and uh, in the Barrett. Uh, so probably in the next year, uh, Julia, uh, we should be a bit more critical uh, about what the extra benefit uh, uh, of a screening uh, uh, endoscopy is because this creates a lot of anxiety in the population a lot of uh, resources uh, waiting lists uh, all of, over Europe uh, are really a problem and so our diagnosis is something that we should learn from other medical fields endoscopy is not always something that you save the life of a patient because you remove a polyp or because you detect a
1: Barrett. I couldn't agree more I, I, that's just absolutely true Cesare it has been a real pleasure talking to you, as always. And next UEG week, with respect to endoscopy, will be as good as this year because we will have the same program director. So thanks for joining us tonight and see you soon.
2: Thanks, Julian. I also join your uh, uh, invitation to everyone to attend uh, uh, next UEG, especially because uh, the uh, postgraduate uh, a course uh, is um, a completely uh, updated and renewed with a new uh, learning uh, uh, point and it will be a fascinating uh, curricula for all the gastroenterologists uh, who in a short time uh, want to uh, gather all of the available information for their clinical practice. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Just right. Thank you for so much. Thanks for listening to this episode, everyone. Uh, I hope it was fun and exciting. Uh, Cesare always gives an amazing insight into things, which I always appreciate that we could cover um, a lot. There was so much more science and uh, the field of endoscopy was, was brilliant. So if our listener, listeners want to go through the UEG platform, the virtual platform to go through some of the abstracts, they can access those. So stay tuned and goodbye. goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.